0: Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Don Lippert, the CEO of Elemental Accelerator, which is a nonprofit startup organization formed in collaboration with Emerson Collective, which is the investment and philanthropic platform led by Lorreen Powell Jobs. Elemental has become one of the most active funders of startups solving urgent climate and environmental challenges. Each year, they back 15 to 20 companies, up to 1 million each, to improve systems that impact the planet and people's lives across energy, water, agriculture, transportation, and beyond. Elemental seems like a great organization. I'm particularly intrigued by the fact that they are primarily working with companies at the deployment phase, so companies that tend to be more established, and working with them on specific substantive infrastructure-heavy projects to bring to life. I also think it's fascinating that they have carved out specific areas around Hawaii, California, and Asia that almost serve as test beds where they can uh, look to implement these projects in those areas that can both do good in those regions, but also be MVPs of projects that they can then roll out in a much broader way around the world. It's a great discussion. I learned a lot, and I hope you will as well. Don Lippert, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for making the time. Elemental Accelerator is one of those organizations that, as I've made the rounds the last year or so, has come up seemingly zillions of times, yet we were only recently introduced, and I'm so glad that we finally were.
1: Likewise. I know. You've talked to many of our friends and partners, so happy to be on.
0: I always say this as if I'm going to start differently each time. It's like, well, maybe we'll just take it from the top, even though I say that every single time, but maybe we'll just take it from the top. What is Elemental Accelerator?
1: Elemental Accelerator is a nonprofit organization. We fund startups to demonstrate technologies that we think are really important, and we surround them with customers, policy, and lots of other tools to go farther faster. So we know we're in a game against the clock on climate and urgent environmental problems, and our role at Elemental Accelerator is to help unlock innovation to get there.
0: Uh huh. And what's the thumbnail sketch of how long has the organization been around? What's the state of the organization today in terms of employees and kind of the different arms of what you do?
1: We're originally started here in Hawaii, where I am now. We now have two offices in Hawaii and California. And I'll just share maybe a little bit of the origin story of why we're in Hawaii. Would that be helpful?
0: Oh, yeah, sure. I was going to ask you that next. But if you want to incorporate <laughs> it to this question, that's great.
1: So I was actually living in... DC right after school. I'd done some graduate work that brought me to Hawaii. And when I moved to DC, I worked for Booz Allen and they had this really interesting project called the Hawaii Clean Energy Initiative. And basically the idea was how do you take an entire state, at that time Hawaii was really dependent on fossil fuel, about 90% of our energy from oil. And how do you take an entire state, entire economy and transition it to clean energy? So that was the project that I worked on for a couple of years, essentially commuting back and forth from DC to Honolulu and really kind of learning the ins and outs of the policy and regulatory scene and how you would make that shift. And then at the same time, I was also actually working on the 1st RPE open FOA, it was the same period of time. And so seeing what was happening in the world of innovation and that very first FOA funding opportunity announcement was open to the entire country for any kind of technology in clean energy or really energy in any kind of capacity. And so seeing these two things in parallel was a really interesting experience because here in Hawaii, we were trying to reconstruct the entire economy from fossil to clean. And then on the RPE side, we were seeing what was happening in terms of the innovation space more broadly. And so when I had the opportunity to move out to Hawaii, work with one of my mentors to essentially start a fund, this is about 10 years ago now, that has now, through many iterations, turned into Elemental Accelerator. It was this really interesting opportunity to say, Okay, in policy, what we're actually trying to do is unlock deployment. And in all these innovators, what they're trying to do is figure out how to get their stuff into the real world. And here in Hawaii, we could actually create a fund and a mechanism to help make those things happen faster. So we can create the policy framework that says, here's the clean stuff we want. And then we can start funding the technology that will help us get there. So that was the birth of Elemental Accelerator and the problem that we're really trying to solve. And then as we've been learning and iterating over the past, 10 years we've been funding projects and learning a lot about how you really build companies in this space in 2011 2012 we were funding companies we just were not seeing them get commercial traction in the ways that we wanted and so i spent about six months actually traveling around the country doing something similar to what you're doing my climate journey it's sort of like my accelerator journey or my tech commercialization journey, talking to anyone who would talk to me about how you actually move tech into the market. And so I met folks from YC and all kinds of different investors and folks that were doing this in tech software. And so thought that there was something we could learn from those folks in the tech software business. They knew a lot about building companies. People in the government and our side knew a lot about energy. And so... People said, oh, well, we were crazy. You could never apply this sort of accelerator company building model or ethos to energy and clean tech. That's not going to work. But there were actually a lot of things that we could learn from each other. So we started testing that and deploying it in late 2012, early 2013 as you know, essentially the first people that were doing that in hardware and clean tech. And then we just iterated and grown from there. So now today, as you asked, we're about 28 people, half in Honolulu, half in the Bay Area. And it's just grown from there.
0: And so you talked about many iterations. What are some of the differences between the thesis when you started and the thesis today? And with the benefit of hindsight, what were some of the kind of key transition moments or chapters, if you will, from then until now?
1: So originally when we started the program and funding companies, we fund companies up to $1 million to do projects in the sectors of energy, water, agriculture mobility and circular economy. So sort of the key emitting sectors and the ones that we think really need to be transformed as a system to address climate. And when we started funding these projects, we saw that there were a lot of technical milestones the companies had to achieve. But what, as soon as you got past those technical milestones it was really about driving commercialization. And so we essentially started a couple of different tracks where we bring in customized coaches for companies, and we've learned over time how to do that coaching. We have 99 companies in our portfolio now, so we fund about 15 to 20 companies a year. And I think what I've learned is that with 99 companies, there's 99 stages. No two companies are seeing the same problem at the same exact time in the same way, but there are still commonalities. So we've developed really a custom coaching model where we bring in people that companies couldn't afford to bring on full time, but we bring them in you know, really specific acupuncture type <laughs> ways for specific problems companies are seeing and then help companies over multiple years grow. So that's something that we've learned over time. It used to be much more of sort of a batch. Like these are the kinds of things we think companies need to know around sales and growth. But then over time, it's been much more focused of what exactly is the problem you're solving today and tomorrow and next week. And then how can we help you get there faster?
0: Is cohort the right word? Do you think of it like a cohort?
1: We do. So we're on cohort nine. So essentially nine years.
0: So these cohorts that come in, is the program... Time box and are they, do they tend to be on site over the course of the program? Are they situated in Hawaii or California or are they geographically all over the place? Answer any or all of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll take you through the, our year process, which is kind of the easiest way to understand it. So in Q1, we recruit for companies. We're doing that right now. We're recruiting companies until March 26th. So we're looking all over the world for companies. We usually talked about 2,000 companies in the course of a year. And last year, 800 companies officially applied for our program. So that's Q1. So those companies actually come from 66 countries. It's pretty broad. We have a pretty broad lens on what's going on around the world in this space. And then in the next quarter, we're into due diligence. So it looks very similar to VC, even though we're a nonprofit. And in addition to the sort of a normal VC data room, what we're also looking for is a project fit, because we actually want to fund a project that is transformational and really differentiated for the company. There's lots of dollars out there for companies in this space. Not enough, but (laughs) there are. What our dollars are specifically good at is deploying in the places where we are and then using those places to pull through technology to the next stage. So in that next one or two quarters, we're essentially getting to know these companies in a pretty deep way and selecting our cohort, which is about 15 to 20 companies. And then the offers go out usually in August for companies. And then they all come to Honolulu in October and we kick them off together in what we call kickoff week. And so there's a really heavy sort of cohort element to this.
0: I was just gonna say, I would make a joke about how torturous that is, but that would be like a dad joke that probably everybody makes when you mention that you bring them to Honolulu. So I won't say it.
1: One of the toughest requirements of the program. (laughs) But yes, we essentially kick them off in October. They all come meet each other. We pick companies that are non-competitive in their industries. And then that kicks off their engagement with us. In our tracks, we work with companies from anywhere from one to three years intensively. And then they stay alumni and part of the network. And for example, every year we have our CEO and leadership summit. We just had it two weeks ago in Hana, Maui, another very difficult location. (laughs) And we had 60 plus CEOs and company leaders there. And the purpose of that is to try to share learnings as quickly as possible across companies And help them accelerate and find community with each other.
0: And what was the thought when you were getting going in terms of nonprofit versus for profit? Was it a hard decision? And why did you end up choosing the nonprofit path?
1: The nonprofit path makes sense for a number of reasons. I mean, we have two goals one is to help companies succeed, and the other is to really transform the places where we're working. I would say those are really two halves of our mission, and through this, to address climate at a really meaningful scale. So, I think the nonprofit choice is important because it's not just about helping companies get to scale. It's about doing that to solve a problem and we can use lots of tools as a nonprofit to get there. So we have a whole policy and community building effort that we surround companies with while we're working with them. So I can just give maybe one or two examples if that would be helpful of how that works. So. For example, Carbon Cure is one of the companies in our portfolio. They inject carbon dioxide into concrete and you can use less cement and have good, strong concrete that works and is essentially sequestering carbon at the same time. And so Carbon Cure, we funded a project with them and the Hawaii Department of Transportation to use this concrete at one of our highway interchanges out on Oahu and to test it so the Hawaii Department of Transportation could actually test it and show that the performance is exactly what they needed for the highway. And then we worked with our mayor of Honolulu on our policy side to pass a resolution to support the use of carbon-infused concrete, and carbon sequestered concrete across all city procurement, and government is a huge user of concrete. Concrete actually is the most abundant man-made material in the world, so this is one of those things that really matters from a climate perspective. And then we worked with our mayor to actually pass a resolution with the Conference of Mayors for a couple of hundred mayors around the city to take a look at the same kind of resolution. So it's really saying, how fast are we spinning the wheel of deployment of technology, policy that supports it, showing that we can deploy technology and doing more policy that either removes barriers or supports it, and just spin that faster and faster. And I think from that perspective, we have a lot of flexibility as a nonprofit to use those different leverage points.
0: And so it sounds like there's three kind of test markets and that's Hawaii and California and Asia, which is a little broader than Hawaii and California, but is it anywhere specific in Asia or is it just kind of Asia overall?
1: Yeah, we're pretty broad in Asia. We have projects primarily in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, Korea, Thailand. We've also worked quite extensively with the Philippines. So for example, in Australia, I mean, Australia is a really interesting market right now for companies. So we've got a dozen companies that are active, either with offices in Australia or projects in Australia. One example is our project with Zero Mass Water that we funded and is now complete. And so they have essentially solar panels, instead of making energy, they make clean, fresh water. We structured it as a joint venture with us, the community and Zero Mass Water. And it's sort of an interesting new model for how to deploy water in these regions. So we see Australia, from an energy market perspective, a water perspective as a really interesting market for companies to deploy in. And so we want to support this kind of growth of companies across Asia.
0: So it's a weird question, but why are you so broad in Asia and so narrow to a couple of specific states in the US?
1: We sort of started in Hawaii. And the reason that Hawaii is a really interesting market to start in is because about 10 years ago when we started this work, the clean energy was much cheaper in Hawaii And the Delta wasn't as big in other geographies. So it just made a lot of sense to deploy clean energy here. We were seeing a huge acceleration of clean energy in the past 10 years since I've been working on this. We've gone from about 8% renewable energy to almost 30% renewable energy statewide on our grid. On Kauai, we've gone from about 10% to many weeks of the year using 100% renewable energy. So we're just seeing that kind of Opportunity to then test technologies that integrate renewable energy and storage and all kinds of things before other places were seeing it. So it's a really interesting place to start. So that testbed, and I would say testbed, not in the sense of we're sort of experimenting our, our community, but we're actually using it as a canvas because we're seeing these problems first. So companies can come here first to solve them. So then as we started doing that, we had a lot of companies that were based in California that were coming through our ecosystem. And we also got to know Emerson Collective. And Emerson Collective was really interested in how do you take this model that we've developed in geographic islands and apply it to economic islands in California. So they actually have a lot in common. If you think about some of the challenges we have in Hawaii with cost of living, cost of energy and access to mobility, all these kinds of issues are somewhat similar to issues we see in California in frontline communities that may have been left behind by kind of the tech boom. And some of the prosperity there in California. And so as we moved to California, this is a, just about three years ago now, we basically came in and listened and really work with communities to see what we could apply of what we were learning here in Hawaii to the work in California and the challenges in California. And so we've been doing that work for about three years. And across this whole period, as we were deploying technologies and working with companies, the whole ideas were basically deploying things on the front line, getting data, getting customer information so that companies can scale. And we have a lot of relationships in Asia. And we saw Asia and companies saw Asia as a really key market in the battle on climate. And so we wanted to support their growth into that market and thought that by working with them with elemental support, it's an easier entry than it otherwise is, which can be difficult to go international for some of the companies at the stage we're talking about.
0: And just for context, from an Elemental standpoint, you mentioned just before we recorded that they're one of your funders, I believe. So could you talk a bit about that funding mix overall, just kind of what are the key buckets that are funding your work and also the relationship with Elemental specifically, since I think you mentioned you kind of wear a dual hat?
1: So Emerson Collectives is one of our key partners, as you mentioned, and I have a Dual hat, they're really focused on taking some of the lessons we're learning and applying them across broader sectors, Emerson Collective. And our funding mix at, at Elemental Accelerator, I said, we're a nonprofit. We're really seated with government funding, helping solve a problem for the Navy in how to commercialize technology that was really important in clean energy. And so we serve as sort of an experimentation arm and partner of the Navy in that way. And that they're really one of our initial funders along with Department of Energy. We also have funding from philanthropy, from people who are really interested in how to work at tech that's really focused on deployment. I would say that I feel really strongly that a dollar spent now and a system deployed now is more valuable than one deployed next year. (laughs) We're really running against the clock. So if you think of Cyclotron Road and Prime as funding some of the really important innovation and science that's seeding this space and creating a pipeline of really interesting technology, we sit right after those kinds of organizations. Companies usually come into our accelerator around Series A, Series B sometimes, or Series C even, and we're focused on deployment and getting things out into the world as quickly as possible, and again, with a preference for this year over next year. So we work with philanthropists and foundations who are really interested in that deployment story. And then the third that we work very closely with is corporates. So we have about 25 corporates that we work with. And the corporate story has been really important in terms of keeping us really close to the market so that we know what kinds of problems they're solving. I think in general, what we've seen in corporates is that there's these two huge forces hitting them. One is technology, one is climate. And they're both moving much faster than corporates and really feel like they can integrate into their planning and into their world. And so by working with us, I think they're basically trying to like turn their headlights on bright to see a little bit farther in front of what's coming and to get their arms around some of these major fast moving forces around both climate and technology.
0: And then all of the investments that you're making, do those take the form of non-dilutive grants or how does that work?
1: So originally when we started, it was all the form of non-diluted grants. And then as we started, companies said, we actually like, want to give back. We'd like to donate warrants or equity to you. So over time, we structured that into it. Because we're working with somewhat later stage companies, this tends to be a really good way for them to have skin in the game with us. And so companies donate between one and 4% of their warrants, essentially to Elemental Accelerator. And then we have a couple of other financing mechanisms as well. I would say at its core, we're A highly experimental (laughs) platform that is trying to constantly learn and figure out how we can most quickly deploy technology into the market. So because of that, we have grants, we have an investment vehicle, we have a number of different ways that we actually engage with companies. They all involve the companies putting some kind of skin in the game, but we're really highly experimental. We're really focused on how do we move tech into market as quickly as possible.
0: And then when these pilots do roll out, given that, I mean, you've done a number of these cohorts now, I think you, did you say 16? Did I get that right?
1: Yeah, we're on cohort nine. Oh,
0: cohort nine. I'm sorry. I don't know where I got 16 from, but I mean, that nine cohorts in, you've done quite a lot of pilots, I would imagine. What does success look like for those pilots and how have those pilots performed versus how you would have hoped that they would?
1: Success looks like a 10X scale up of the pilot within two years. When we're scoping pilots and when we're scoping projects, that's what we're looking for. So from a financial perspective, from a technology perspective, from the constellation of partners and customers we're putting around something, can this scale 10X in two years? Maybe three years, but in that time frame,
0: What metric should scale 10X?
1: It depends on the company, but it might be number of deployments. It might be the size of the system. It might be in terms of revenue in the sector that we're opening up for them. So it can vary depending on what it is we're really testing with the pilot. With the different companies, there's different pieces that we're testing. Sometimes we're testing a new business model iteration. Sometimes we're testing something on the technology scale upside. So it really depends on what the company is trying to drive toward. So a couple examples to illustrate what we're looking to do. So in Hawaii in particular, we have a couple of interesting opportunities for technology. One I mentioned is the integration of renewable energy and how you do that at scale. So on that note, one of our early portfolio companies from 2013 was STEM when they were Series A company. And so they're a distributed battery company. And what they really wanted to test was how do we take our distributed batteries and tie them together as one whole asset that the utility can then draw on? which seems really sort of obvious now, but six years ago, they were really, or seven years ago, they were really on the leading edge of this. And they had a handful of distributed batteries deployed across California, but they hadn't been able to connect them all together in a framework and sell those to the utility so that it looked like one battery or one asset. So they came to us, we put that together here with Hawaiian Electric, who was a key partner, our utility we worked with our Public Utilities Commission to structure a rate that would pay them for essentially grid response, which is one level deeper of services, grid services, than just demand response, just turning something on and off, grid response, because these are batteries, you can actually charge and discharge. And we're able to deploy about a megawatt of batteries across Oahu and test that model. And then STEM was able to take that same playbook and to Southern California, where they won about 80 megawatts contract to scale that up, in that case ADX. So that's essentially what we're trying to create is use the systems and the assets that we have to demonstrate something that then companies can scale up very rapidly in other markets.
0: Got it. So, I mean, you kind of answered it, but just for to make sure I understand it, is it, are you using these markets as a testbed where it's just about getting the learning almost like an MVP that you can then take everywhere? Or is it more about decarbonizing the specific markets that you're focused on? Or is it both?
1: It's both and, for sure. So I think decarbonizing the Hawaii market is interesting from a whole systems learning perspective. So That wasn't the only project that stem did here they've continued to deploy systems across the grid in hawaii we've another company carbon lighthouse on the efficiency side they've since opened an office here and have about half a dozen people here working on efficiency so after we funded their initial project they've just been able to scale and grow that and work on decarbonizing the grid here from an efficiency perspective so ultimately it's both sides of that vision so being able to deploy innovation that's really needed in a place that needs it And then integrate those innovations across an entire system and show how we can decarbonize a system so that we can actually take system level learnings to other places is one piece. And then the other piece is just actually helping those companies scale in their fastest moving markets with models that we've helped them prove. So doing both at once is really the key.
0: The cadence that you are with X many companies per cohort and things like that, do you feel like it's a good size, it's a good cadence, we're going to stick with this for a while, or do you dream of expansion? And if you dream of expansion, in what direction and what does that look like?
1: Yes, always dream of expansion. (laughs) I'd say we're pretty alarmed at the state of the climate and the environment and have spent really a decade tooling a machine and a process and a learning organization that we feel like can help companies accelerate decarbonization of our planet, <laughs> of our industries. And so we're looking at expansion in a number of different ways. I mean, and I would also just say that our team's actually been together, the core of our team for a long time. We've been growing, but our team is super hungry. We're on a mission, and I think we have enough sort of collective startup and government and industry experience to be dangerous and be effective, but we also know we have a lot to learn. So we're hungry to make a bigger impact. The so ways that we're thinking about expanding in terms of providing additional capital to companies, that could look like a number of different things that we're looking at. Capital continues to be a constraining factor for many companies. We need more funds investing more in companies. So that's something that we're looking at and exploring. We are really interested in this idea of the interplay of technology and policy and how you can use on the ground teams like we have at Elemental to vastly accelerate the pace at which companies can deploy in key markets. Again, you have to get stuff in the ground to actually address climate. And so we're interested in expanding that capability to other markets to basically be an advanced team that helps companies and clean energy companies and mobility along with water and regenerative agriculture go faster in these key markets so that we can address climate faster. And then the third thing is really thinking about how we can expand what we're learning and share that in a really helpful and proactive way with other startups, governments, think tanks, people who are really working hard on these problems. Like you said, we've learned a lot. We've funded now 59 demonstration projects, many of which have scaled up to much larger scale. And through that process, we've learned an enormous amount about what it takes to deploy clean mobility companies, to deploy electric vehicle charging infrastructure across an entire grid, to deploy regenerative agriculture companies in ways that are complementary to each other. And so we're really thinking actively about how we can scale that for the good of the industry.
0: That reminds me, going way back in this discussion, you talked about coaching and how each company in the cohort assigns a coach, or it might be a group. But my question is, what is the expertise of that coaching, and is it consistent from company to company, or is it customized for each company in each cohort?
1: So we have a stable of coaches (laughs) that we apply kind of surgically to companies as they hit different barriers and need different kinds of help around sales and growth, around operational scale-up you know, manufacturing product, all these different pieces that any company runs into challenges at different times and just needs really oftentimes specific expertise to get through a specific hurdle. And then within our team, I mentioned we have about 20 people on our team, we have industry experts on our team that are also essentially serving as coaches and helping connect them to folks and helping them go faster. So. I forgot the rest of the question. <laughs> is that what you're looking for?
0: Yeah. I mean, the question was mostly just because you said it was like acupuncture. And so I didn't know whether it was like executive coaching or coaching like, hey, we're going to bring in someone who's built out this kind of infrastructure in a domain that has similarities, but is like one degree removed, or maybe even is like the last generation of the domain that you're working in now, something like that.
1: All of the above. We actually do executive coaching. We offer executive coaching as well. And in particular, we offer executive coaching for our Female founders and execs on our teams. We have a really heavy focus on equity and access. So we think of that in two ways equity in, which is what you do in your company, hiring, retention, supporting diverse leadership and inclusion, and also equity out. So, how is your product or what you're working on really serving communities on the front lines, communities that need it most? And how are you also finding those markets that are Beyond sort of the initial well-to-do, typical clean tech, solar customer or EV customer, and really expanding your market share in Hawaii, the forty-eight percent of people that are living paycheck to paycheck—that's an enormous market opportunity. So, how are you really thinking about that from an equity out perspective? So that's really been the focus of our California work in particular. But companies across our entire portfolio have been hungry for both the equity in and equity out tools and frameworks, and so we've been offering that and really moving out on that across our entire portfolio. And I can give a couple examples of our equity and access projects in California if that would be helpful. Please, that'd be great. So one of the companies that we have worked with on the equity inside is Yertle. So they're a company that basically powers the reuse brands from Patagonia, from REI, now from Nordstrom. So, you know, Warren Ware from Patagonia. I
0: just got an intro to Andy from Victoria over at Prelude.
1: Yes, you should definitely talk to him.
0: <laughs> I will, but I didn't want to break your flow. Keep going.
1: <laughs> so you talked to Andy about this, but at Yertle, they're growing really quickly, a huge need for people. And so our project with them is focused on how do you really expand the kinds of people that are coming into Yertle? How do you partner with communities to have employ people from the communities where their facilities are? and what does that sort of overall people strategy look like they have an amazing sort of chief people officer that's working on that and then our investment in our project with them is really focused on driving equity in beyond where they otherwise would be able to do that so that's bringing in different kinds of resources different kinds of community partners and kind of pushing the envelope there which i think and i hope andy will say too will make them more successful in the long run we're basically pulling forward a lot of that expertise on equity in to their company
0: So you mentioned that you're very concerned about the state of the planet and we have to move faster. You also mentioned that it's not necessarily that other aspects aren't as important, but that deployment specifically is a very important piece and one that it sounds like your team has developed a real core competency on through pattern recognition of nine cohorts in. But what I'm curious about is if you look at traditional venture capital, for example, you have some funds are focused in this world of like, call it climate tech or clean tech or whatever word you want to use. You have some funds say it's sustainability. Some funds say it's decarbonization specifically. Some funds might call it world positive without giving away who I'm talking about. But <laughs> I would never guess. I would never guess. <laughs> but deployment of what? Because you work with a wide range of companies. So how do you define the problem that you're tackling? There's the equity piece, which I agree is very important, But that's not the whole picture, right? So what's kind of the rest for you as you define it? Because you could take that in any direction, but I'm talking about for you when you're making assessments of who's the best fit for these cohorts, for example, okay, they're ready for deployment, but how do we know if the thing that they're deploying matches up with what we care about?
1: It's a great question. I think it goes to this entire space, how everyone has a way they define this. For us, we have a broad brush of solving urgent environmental challenges clearly climate is at the top of that list. But there are others that are really important as well around pollution and local pollution and other kinds of water scarcity issues, water access issues. So in each of our five verticals that I mentioned, energy, agriculture, water, mobility, and circular economy and industry, we have investment theses that drive what we're looking for in each of those areas. And we've published those on our website. But I would say that overall we're governed by solving urgent environmental challenges and then trying to find the highest leverage opportunities, in each of those spaces. So like an example in mobility, we're very interested in transit for obvious reasons. It's It's the best way to move a lot of people through narrow spaces and cities and the world is increasingly urbanizing. So we, like transit's really important. A few years ago, we invested in a company called swiftly that's digitizing the transit routes and making them visible for the first time, providing much more accurate information to transit operators, connecting transit to other forms of other modalities. And they're expanding so quickly. The one thing I loved about Swiftly, when we invested in them, they were four people and were already in about 25 cities, had 25 cities as customers. I mean, this is like the kind of pain point that they discovered in transit was that the we were so far behind in digitizing this space. So that's just an example of something that we're really interested in within our investment thesis. But anything that really solves an urgent environmental challenge, we'll take a look at it.
0: What's kind of the umbrella rallying cry of the purpose of why your team gets up every day? If you had to kind of put it, I don't want to trivialize it with a tagline, but how would you describe the rallying unifying problem that Elemental Accelerator is solving?
1: How about uplift people and planet?
0: And that was a leading question, because the question I'm going to ask you next is I'm going to say, if you had a hundred billion dollars and you could put it towards anything too, and normally I say to accelerate the clean energy transition or things like that. But in your case, I actually want to say and you could put it towards uplifting people and planet, where would you put it, and how do you allocate it? Because I wanted to tailor it to the things that your organization specifically cares the most about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I love this question to think big about it. I think I would cut it in two, if possible and devote one half to really electing people (laughs) who understand the science, understand the problem, and are going to be partners in putting policies in place to get there. This is so important. We work at the local level, we work at the state level, we work at the national level. At the local level, building codes are absolutely key drivers of technology and clean energy and what the carbon footprint of our buildings and infrastructure built environment will look like for decades to come. So you have to focus at the local level, at the state level, it's around renewable portfolio standards. At the national level, it's around intergovernmental agreements, but also what we're doing at national level around pricing carbon, other things. So I think up and down the local, state, national policy stack, having people that understand these issues and are motivated by doing the right thing by our society is really important. So I would focus there. And then on the second half, putting dollars into high leverage places to fund deployment because ultimately policy is trying to set up the guardrails so that we can get more hardware and more stuff in the ground that is lower carbon and that we can leave the stuff in the ground that is greenhouse gas emitting. So ultimately we have to get stuff built and it matters when we do that. It has to be sooner rather than later. So I guess I would split it in two and just see if you can get that policy deployment merry-go-round, spinning faster, and they really inform each other. I mean, what we've seen in Hawaii and California and in Asia, one of the reasons that we fund these deployment projects is it is so much easier to get policymakers to believe that this is possible and to get motivated to do something if they see it in their backyard, if they say, oh, these are solutions that make a ton of sense, I can see where it's going and it's real, I can make it happen. That sort of seeing is believing drives the policy conversation and the policy wheel in a really important way. If you look at sort of electric buses or electrification transportation, you can't get too far ahead on policy without saying like there's this whole pipeline of Proteras and electric bus companies and electrification solutions from AMPly and eMotorworks and others in our portfolio and beyond that can deliver on the policy goals that you have. So the deployment really informs the policy and then the policy sets the frame for deployment. So I think if you're really serious about solving climate, you're about trying to get that merry-go-round just going faster and faster.
0: So as I've been making the rounds, I think there's been very little, if any, resistance to the statement that we need to deploy what we've got faster. And so it's great that you're focused on this area. I've heard a lot of different theories or things that people point to for the barriers. You can say, in the U.S., we can't build big things anymore or we need a price on carbon, or you know, we don't have the right incentive structures set up and subsidies and things like that, or we don't have enough high quality founding teams, or it's early stage capital, or it's growth stage capital, like it's strategics and that's it, or it's project finance, or it's getting the first plant built, or how do you, I mean, you've touched on some of it with the where you put the money, but where are the biggest bottlenecks as you look at that? And what do we do about it?
1: It really depends on the sectors that you're looking at. And so you can get kind of like granular and specific. I think there are things that we see across companies for sure. I mean, one thing is that talent is the most important thing that drives sort of the innovation and deployment ecosystem and having more talent come into the space from other sectors has been really influential and I think impactful in the last couple of years. We've even seen more and more, both software talent, sort of the crew that you talk to and work with, and that is really activated, but also like kind of construction and industry and other talent, either leaving what they were doing and kind of coming into clean energy full time or using their various positions to influence this world. So, I think I would say number one is getting aligned talent, whether they're sort of diving in head first to the starting a company and like building a company to do this, or whether they're using their various platforms to do that. I think it's really about getting people activated in every single one of the things you mentioned (laughs) to solve this. So I think that's one. And then I guess that the other piece, I would say, there's still a significant amount of transaction and soft cost around a lot of this deployment. So one of the things that, I'm really interested in is how can you take the learnings around permitting, around regulation, around utility procurement, all these different pieces that have just huge amounts of transaction costs associated with them and learn from jurisdictions of how to reduce that as much as possible. I still think that what we see across jurisdictions is whether it's corporate, government, or other places, there's a lot of transaction costs to getting this stuff built. And so there'll be trade-offs in how we do that and how we look at our environmental laws, our permitting and other things. But I think that's a really important place to put some attention.
0: And given that you have such a wide range of companies, um, but they do tend to be further along, it sounds like, and later stage, do you feel like their most pressing problems are consistent across companies? Are there common themes or is it just all over the map?
1: Yeah, there's definitely common themes. Coming off our CEO summit, some of the things that came up all the time is how do you partner and sell in a way that is really, really scalable? Many of these companies work in heavily regulated industries with long sales cycles. And so that one comes up all the time. And some people have really figured out good tricks and hacks and (laughs) are willing to share them. And that's incredibly valuable. That's one. I think the questions sort of around team are always top of mind. It's super competitive out there with talent, very difficult to compete with Google and Facebook on salary alone. So how do you structure comp packages? How do you really pull a team together with the talent that you need in this space? That one is also always top of mind for entrepreneurs. And then I think a couple on the softer side that we've been hearing about, and that were really intensive discussions at our CEO summit, were around how you maintain your sort of energy and optimism for the long haul in this space. Because if you're building a company that's dealing with clean water or dealing with mobility access, like these are long builds and you have to figure out how to manage your energy and maintain your momentum over the course of a pretty significant period of time. And so we talk about self-care as a leadership skill, (laughs) as we talk about impact. Many of the entrepreneurs that we work with are in this and not building the next sort of camera app because they're so interested in the impact. But then, how do you manage that? You can't do everything at all times. So, I mean, in terms of impact, it's doing like what you can, where you can, when you can. You have to realize that maybe you'll be able to do certain things on diversity, equity, inclusion this year, and like wait for other things for next year. You can't do everything in a startup um, at the same time, or you won't be able to scale. So, I would say that those are a couple of things that are common to companies, but Even though every company is going through its own situation, there are many more commonalities than differences.
0: A number of the people listening to uh, this podcast come from a wide range of backgrounds from engineers to product managers to designers to CEOs to hedge fund managers to big media publishers, to scientists, to advocates, to someone that a prior guest told me recently that a U.S. congressman reached out after listening to his episode and they got together and had a good meeting. So it's a very wide range. But I think one thing that that most of these listeners have in common is that they're trying to figure out how to either do more if they've been working in this area for a long time, or if they're just coming in kind of fresh, they're trying to figure out how to anchor and how their skill sets most effectively transfer to be effective working on this problem set. So maybe just talk to them for a moment. What advice do you have for people in those shoes, me included, who are just kind of coming in fresh and trying to figure out how to get productive?
1: Well, listening and learning is definitely the number one first step. I think that's sort of core to being in this space is just being a voracious learner. <laughs> the space is changing very quickly. But I guess one way to answer that question would be to just give an example of one of our other portfolio companies, Ampere, which is a hybrid electric aircraft. And one of the things that makes Hawaii kind of an interesting market is this ability to do short haul aviation. And so some people think electric aviation's really far in the future. It's actually coming to Maui this year. In the form of Ampere's aircraft, we're going to fly it to get its next level of, of certification from the FAA for about 100 hours on a cargo route here. And in order to make this project happen, it takes regulators at the FAA writing the regulations, working with industry to do that. It takes There's actually a, an act going through Congress right now, speaking of Congressman, to open up the market around electric aviation. There's our local Department of Transportation and literally like airport guys and gals that are working on how to charge the very first hybrid electric aircraft in Hawaii and one of the first in the world. There are cargo people, pilots, our Hawaiian electric, our utility workers to figure out how to you know, connect this and get power and make it all work. And then so many sort of engineers and folks on this, on the startup side as well. But all of those people wouldn't necessarily identify themselves as like people in the clean energy industry that are counted in the green jobs of 2020, but they absolutely are. So I think it's about finding your passion and your slot and where you are and what you're good at, and then figuring out where there are nexus points to things that really matter in the climate fight. Aviation, for example, is one of the fastest growing segments of carbon emissions. So there's so much to be done in that space. But I think in literally every sector, that's the case, whether you're working for a private company, a software company, others, there's things you can do in your current role. And then if you feel like it's not enough, listening to this and reaching out to either these companies or you or me or these kinds of people that have kind of broad networks in this space to figure out where else you can plug in.
0: One question I forgot to ask is around the equity and inclusion piece. So when you're assessing these companies, I guess, so one vector is, do they fit the criteria in terms of this problem that they're trying to solve? Another is, do they fit the criteria in terms of is equity inclusion kind of in and out core to what they do and how they do it? Where does the return profile fit into all of this, and where does that sit in the pecking order as you're assessing these cohort decisions?
1: Yeah, I mean that's really important, but it's something that we can also help companies with. So we're absolutely looking at their ability to have a profitable, growing business as a key criteria to coming into the program. But we're also have a lot of experience in helping companies through that and figure out a business model around it as well. So i would say it's just really looking at the multiple sides of impact and there has to be a business model around it for companies to stay alive <laughs> and be able to make the impact that they want to make in this space but i also think that increasingly companies themselves are identifying that equity in is a really critical competitive advantage to having the team that they want to build the strong team that they want to build and equity out is really important from market sizing perspective And from, I think, a broad recognition that unless this transition includes everyone and includes the people who need it most, we're not going to get there fast enough. So I would say both and.
0: (laughs) And because you're doing such important work, I also just have to ask for anyone listening that your mission and your work you're doing really resonates. How can they be helpful to you? We, I should say.
1: A number of ways. So number one, referring companies
0: to us is key.
1: We also run a Really broad internship program to put interns in our portfolio companies, helping sort of develop this pipeline of talent with a preference for people who are first in their family to go to college. And so, referring interns in or finding those young people that have a real passion for this space and helping them get connected into our startups and into our organization. And then, I think in particular, sort of looking through the portfolio, either our companies as well as other startups out there, and figuring out. How, in your own role and your own work you do, you can be a champion for some of these low carbon technologies. They absolutely need early customers, early adopters, early believers who are willing to go on the journey with them. We've found hundreds of those kinds of partners and customers across our corporate partnership program, across our utilities that we work with, and governments and other kinds of partners. But if there are companies that you think could help solve a problem that you're seeing in your company or in your agency, That is the number one thing that we're looking for as a deployment-focused and deployment-forward organization.
0: Well, I feel like we've covered an awful lot of ground, especially for a Friday afternoon. Is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have, or do you have any parting words for listeners?
1: I guess what I would say is that since it's just about one or two months into the decisive decade, I guess the last thing I would just leave us with is this idea of how we can go faster together. This is something that we're constantly learning about and asking ourselves about what will help us get to the velocity that we need to find solutions around climate. So that's what gets me up every day. (laughs) That's what I think about with my baby daughter. How are we going to make sure that in the next decade, we're really bending the curve in a way that makes this planet somewhere where we can all live and thrive. So it's just that question, how do we beat the clock?
0: Well, I heard so many good things about you before this episode, and I have to say, this did not disappoint. I am really impressed by the work that you do, and I'm so appreciative for you taking the time to come on and and share it with all of us.
1: I'm so appreciative for you and the journey that you've gone on and are taking us all along with
0: you. So really appreciate you, Jason. Well, thanks so much, Don. Thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) Take care. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you.